Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than Ric Flair winning the Royal Rumble. Woo! My name's Ash Rose, your host and your guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast. Back for a sixth, sixth year we've been talking about 1990s football. That's why... We are the original 90s football podcast, so thank you very much for joining us. If this is your first time, hello, where have you been? It's been six years, it's been 120-odd episodes. Get back in the archive and listen to all the 90s nonsense that we've been talking about for the last six years. God, it's gone so quick, hasn't it? Uh, but back for 2021, and uh, I want to say better than ever, but who knows in this crazy, crazy world what's going to happen to the next day and to the next. We're, we've suffered in our own Alive and Kicking team here with Joel, who's been struck down by this horrible virus. So best wishes go out to him. He's not on the show today. But yeah, I hope everyone out there is doing okay amidst this third lockdown, which I know it's hard. It's a hard work. Um, I know myself with homeschooling and everything else, trying to hold down jobs and, and things like that. I, but I don't want to get too, you know, down in the dumps. It's hard not to. I understand that in the current climate. But let's focus on some positivity. Let's give you a respite from the the world in 2021 and let's go back to the 1990s and talk some football in the decade that changed football forever uh, and today's show uh, as i'll explain as we get on as we start the show uh, in a bit uh, is basically inspired by a tweet over christmas break um from a long-term friend of the show he was on our original episodes mr paddy o'sullivan as i'll go into in just a bit so we're kind of talking things from 90s football that have kind of been lost and from the modern game. And whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, we just have a, a discussion. And to be honest, we run out of time. I think there's possibly going to be a part two to this because we go on and on about so many little subjects um, as we do on this, on this show because we're passionate about 1990s football. Um, but yeah, I think we could go again. So if you do like this show, um, this, this theme for this show, do let us know on Twitter at AK90s. Um, so we'll do part two and probably get the same guys on it as well. Um, joining me today is obviously Matthew Chris, part of the furniture here at Alive and Kick In. And we also welcome back Paul Benson, who hasn't been on the show for, oh, I can't even remember, but way too long. Um, and it will definitely be back because he is almost as mad about the 90s as me. And I know that personally because I do a 90s wrestling podcast with him. So if you're, if you're into your wrestling, check out How Mania. Yeah. Uh, we also got an interview today as well. We're kicking off the year and our sixth, it's not really season, but sixth year of Alive and Kicking with another famous face from the past, from 90s football, uh, former Manchester City manager Brian Halton joins us on the line to talk about his new book and talk about his time at Main Road. So yeah, enjoy that as well. We've got some more great guests coming up in the next few episodes as well. Um, I, I, you know, I usually say here, oh, we'll be back for the next few weeks or we're not going anywhere. To be honest, I don't know. And that's down to the current situation in the world in terms of who's available, how much time people have and if we can get it in the can. But we will try. We will try and get episodes as regularly as possible. But I don't I'm, I don't want to make promises and, and they don't come true. Um, so uh, just keep abreast of the Twitter feed and the Instagram page and everything else. My personal account at Ashrose UK. And, and then you'll know when uh, some more 90s football nostalgia will be hitting your uh, podcast platform of choice. So let's get on with it. Let's talk about some things from the 1990s that are gone. Enjoy. 
Sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football. If the 90s are now retro, then it's time for a celebration. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Hello, it's 2021 and we're back for another year, our sixth year on Alive and Kicking, believe it or not. Yeah, we've been going six years now. That's a hell of a lot of 90s football that we've talked about. So if you haven't listened before, get in the archive and listen. I think there's now 120 something episodes. Crazy. Yeah, we're still trying. We're still finding things to talk about. Honestly, stick with us. There's there's loads more to go. The original 1990s football podcast, of course. Um, today, yeah, before we kick off the year with a quite a free flowing theme, I put a little bit on Twitter earlier, which I'll, I'll read out some tweets um, as we go through the show. Um, we'll get to that in just a second. We've also got an interview as well, which uh, you would have heard in the intro of who we've got. So we'll cut that coming up as well. But let me introduce who we've got on the show today. Uh, firstly, joining me as ever, as always on this show. Um, Kind of happy belated New Year to you, because it's still January, I can still say that. He is a writer, a blogger, he's been well getting to his writing in lockdown, actually. He's Brian McClare's best mate, and even in this Zoom call that I'm looking at, there's a number plate behind him that says Chucky 13. Yeah, we've gone that far, Mr Matthew Christ, haven't we? Well, I think we have, yeah. I mean, you, you tell me, is it, is it becoming unhealthy, or um, what's wrong with two, two men being friends in this day and age? <laughs> Even if one of them is my um, all-time footballing hero. Yeah. Did you get that made? And I didn't. Somebody did and sent oh, it okay. to me. So oh, if okay. anyone wants to send any um, Brian McClare paraphernalia, then um, you know where to send it to. I sent you the, didn't, I sent you the Corinthian, didn't I? Did I get you that? Did that get you in the end? I've got the uh, mug. The t-shirt. Okay. I'm wearing the T-shirt as well. <laughs> He's even got the T-shirt. How is Brian, anyway? He's very well, yeah. He um, he popped down to see me just before Christmas because, obviously, here in Liverpool, we were lucky. We were in Tier 2. So, you know, those few weeks up until Christmas, we could basically go out and enjoy ourselves while you lot were locked down. So we had a bit of a Christmas booze up, I suppose you could say. And, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a good night. But, um, yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, one, so, one day we'll get him on the podcast. One day. Yeah, well... I'll have a word with him. Yeah, have a word with him. Have a word with him. Um, Join us as well. Um, we must firstly say Joel is unfortunately, unfortunately not with us. He is struck down by this wretched virus that is obviously affecting everyone's life. So get well soon, Joel. Hope to get you back on the pod and hope you're not coughing. He's in quite a bad way, bless him. So um, best wishes to Joel. But replacing him, we've got, we brought him from the subs bench. Someone who hasn't been on this show for far too long, actually. Um, somebody I know who loves the 90s because I spend, well, I will spend the other half of my evening talking to them about 90s wrestling. Cheap plug for wrestling fans, How Mania, if you like your 90s wrestling. Um, he is the ringmaster of Hooked on Wrestling and a big Grimsby Town fan, Mr. Paul Benson. How you doing, PB? I'm all right, mate. Thank you. Interesting. I spent the 90s denying that I was a wrestling fan, but nowadays I'd rather admit to that rather than being a Grimsby fan. So, um the tables have turned. The tables have turned. Yeah, I'm sure Ivan Benetti is the, the main thing we talked about whenever the last time you were on the podcast. That's the 90s Grimsby story, really, isn't it? It's the, it's the story, mate. Yeah, absolutely. If he was still around, maybe we wouldn't be plumbing the depths of lead two. But hey-ho. Him and his, his chicken... Ki- was it chicken Kievs that he got, he got thrown in? 
it, it was i wish that would be slightly less painful it was a bucket of kfc and uh, you know how hard that goes after it's been out a while so uh, i assume the bucket stayed unthrown but uh, who knows really who knows what goes on in their dressing room great fable story check that out if you haven't we've probably talked about it many times on here i've just been followed actually on twitter by someone 90s banging tunes that's a bit that's that's, 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 that's the that, joel's alias account after he's been blocked that could be another Joel account, yeah. But I don't know which account of mine that's followed because obviously there's a few. But yeah, that's that's a good timing, I thought, there. Um, 19's banging tunes. Thank you very much for following us, whoever you're following. Anyway, that's um, that's talk 90s football then. Um, what, we do, what we've done for today's show is actually inspired by somebody who uh, was a, who's been a, a guest on the show. He was on the first ever episode, um, which was way back in 2015, and he's appeared... Uh, sporadically since then. Uh, Patrick O'Sullivan is his name. Good friend, good old friend of mine, actually, back from uh, my youth. Very good friend of mine. Uh, he got into Twitter over <laughs> last year and he threw out a great tweet over Christmas, which I flippantly replied to, but actually thought it would be a great idea to kind of kick us off quite gently into the new year. Because uh, as I've said previously, it's now 31 years since 1990. So we don't want to shout about that too much because it makes us feel very, very old. Um, so I have to do gently into to 2021 and with this theme. Um, so follow him at Paddy the Dark for sure, because um, he's worth a follow, even though he's a Chelsea fan. We, uh, so the theme is, this is this is literally, I'm going to verbatim uh, quote his tweet. Grew up watching football in the 90s. What things from that period have totally gone from the modern game? And he gives a few examples, um, which are, will probably come up. So I thought I'd throw that out to uh, to the guests today or they're not guests i should use that word to the regulars to the 90s football fans so we're going to chat through a few things we're not going to sort of round robin it we'll just free flow and and recall what we uh, remember and what's kind of gone from from the modern game um which i'm, I'm sure it's many many moons um paul seeing as you are our returning guest we haven't spoken to you for a very long time on Alive and Kicking. Do you want to kick us off and throw one into the mix and then we'll maybe we'll throw a theme around it if we can pull a few strands. Give us something that's gone from the 90s, uh, sorry, gone from the modern game from the 90s. Absolutely. Well, obviously, like you, Ash, uh, I'm something of a fan of, of kits. Kits <laughs> from the 90s, kits from the 80s, kits from the 2000s, but specifically the 90s. And the first thing that came into my mind when you mentioned this topic was, where are the awesome goalkeeper kits nowadays? Yeah. Just, you know, the, the absolute insanity that went into the designs of some of those. And we could all reel off 10, 15 templates of kits from the 90s. But the one that always flashed into my mind when I think it is Peter Schmeichel's lime sleeves and his blue and red and yellow monstrosity. What happened? Suddenly, it was as if someone literally turned out the light overnight and every goalkeeper kit was then just standard blocks of colour. Yeah. Um, so, and it genuinely, genuinely bothers me. Where are those funky <laughs> goalkeeper kits to match, to match their funky personalities? It's, it's a travesty. I think it's a little bit of a case as well where goalkeepers have got a bit cooler. In like You, think, you can look at um, Alisson, like... He's a very cool man. Like I can see why a you know a female would be very attracted, and or a male, given that, um, be attracted to Alison. Uh, Edison is another one. They've, they've become a bit cool, haven't they? You can't really, you know, Mike Hooper wasn't cool. You know, <laughs> Kevin, as much as we like them, Mike, Kevin Pressman wasn't cool. So it, it's like they got to a certain point and went, "I'm not going to wear these goalkeeping kits because I, you know, I want to match 
the cool kits that the you know the uh, the outfield players are playing. So I think that was an element to it. Um, Matthew, I know we've. And I think we'll say this a lot on the show before uh, tonight where we've mentioned things, but we're bringing them all together in one. You're a big fan of the, the Schmeichel kits that um, Paul mentioned because he had some some blinding ones. But isn't yours the is it the early 90s one that is your favourite? Yeah, I'm glad you, you saved yourself there because I was just about to say I couldn't stand that that 92, 93 one. I, it was just so over the top. And do you remember it had those sort of padded sections and it was like yeah. a, it was like a it was like a fat suit I, I just didn't <laughs> I didn't take to it the, one, the season before the 91-92 season was my favorite that one that every time we talk about it I struggle to um describe it but it's like uh it was like it's tv interference yeah uh, vertically on a green shirt black and white sort of uh, like a Geiger counter I suppose <clears throat> and um that was my favorite but then yeah, then, like you say, the night, I think it went along with the, the start of the Premier League. Suddenly you had these really garish, um, colourful kits and, you know, they were padded and they were they didn't fit too well. But although I was saying that, a lot of 90s kits were baggy yeah. and, and, and junky. But going back to, you were saying how, what happened to them. And uh, it's funny, I was listening to, a, believe it or not, I was listening to another podcast recently over Christmas. And, um, how dare you? It was uh, it was Neville Southall. He was. Do you, do you remember in the nineties, Neville Southall? He just used to wear an all black kit. Yeah. And he was very. Yeah. He was very sort of of its. He was very individual in that because everyone else was wearing these colourful kits. Because the theory was that if you wear a colourful goalkeeper kit, you put off the onrushing striker. But Southall apparently saw it the other way, and he said, "If I wear all black, I blend into the background to the crowd, so the striker can't see where I am. So essentially, I become a." you know, a camouflage enemy. Whereas if I wear bright colours, I'm a, I stand out to the, um, to the striker and then he can see where I am and put it past me, put it through my legs or whatever. So whether that had anything to do with it, I don't know whether that was just Southall being his usual, you know, uh, usual self of being um, different from everything else, but um, maybe there's some science behind it because you don't get those manic garish kits anymore i mean they do tend to be block colors admittedly they're usually bright colors aren't they now pink yellow green but um maybe somebody said let's not go down this route of making the goalkeeper become a target let's try and make them blend in with the with the crowd maybe i don't know maybe it's just southall's uh, contrary ways it didn't work for southall on the first ever qpr game i went to because he was i remember he was wearing all black that day and he got sent off because he came out of the box too early and handled it so clearly maybe he was hoping nobody would see him. yeah exactly paul did any did grinsby have any crazy goalie kids no mate they didn't we were all templated back in the day so it was all um Block colours, as were most kits in the lower divisions for goalie kits. There was nothing really stand out. Um, you know, the occasional one that copied the the John Lukage Arsenal style kit or the uh, David Seaman Arsenal style kit, but no, it was all all much of muchness at town. We the, the only interesting kit we had in the entire 1990s was when we decided our third kit should be modelled on AC Milan's Lotto shirt when we were briefly. Under the lotto wing, and we had this. You remember the obviously, you know the Man United grey kit with the, uh, the the fuzzy top half and the dark grey stripes on the bottom. Well, this shirt was kind of the blue equivalent of that. Oh, I think um, I yeah, yeah. And we had that for a season, and we felt ever so cosmopolitan because we had AC Milan shirt. But then, uh, 
that quickly wore off. That's did sure. you have a best? Did you have a better record in it than United did in the? Uh, only <laughs> wore that kit three. Uh, I think it'd be difficult to have a worse record, yeah. wouldn't it? But um, yeah. but it's. Uh, I, I did own that Man United kit. I owned that Man United kit and I had Paul Ince's name on the back. And um, what was that? Did I have Paul Ince on the back? That might not be true. I can't remember. No, I had um, Andre Kachelskis on the back of that one. Oh, expensive. And uh, yeah. It was, it was no, obviously. No, that's why I got it. I got Ince on my first one because. Yeah, I think Ince had gone, gone there by that season. I think he had. Yeah, he had. And maybe Kachelskis said, maybe I'm getting them all mixed up, but I definitely had Ince on my blue and white deck chair shirt because my dad gave me a tenner at Old Trafford. And he said, go and get whatever whatever number you want. And it's one of those, you know, like the concept of giving people unlimited holidays at work. And the idea is that they shrink it down rather than take the mick. Well, I would stand there with this, my tenner in my hand and the, the priceless. And this was right on the cusp of when Beckham had just made his Champions League debut and Skulls was just coming through. So I had all these players, I had gigs, I had Cantona, I had all in my price range, but I went for the cheapest one, Ince number eight, and I regretted it almost immediately. QPR <laughs> <laughs> had a, gr- I mean, this is my holy grail of football kits that I don't own. QPR had a goalkeeper kit, um, early 90s. So we're talking, yeah, because it was Brooks. So it would have been 91, 92. And I think they had it for the following season as well. Those bright yellow with green kind of flashes, not quite Norwich flex, but all the all the way down, almost like something like Wolverine has gone across it. Um, Jan Stayscale wore it and Tony Roberts. It's beautiful, yeah. but I don't think I've ever seen it online on eBay because I don't. I think I, I mentioned this before. I don't think you could buy goalkeepers' kits. I don't think they were well, really they were rare. We we spoke about this before, didn't we? That the, it was basically only geeks that would ever wear goalkeeping. Yeah, because I don't think you could, I don't think the club shop stock them. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Buy them. I you found the old Chris Turner United one from about 87, 88, but it was in the back of a, a magazine, and it was the classic. Yeah. Do you remember that every every Adidas kit, the keeper kit was exactly the same back then, yeah, basically a green shirt yeah. with a white collar and the three yeah. stripes. So, you know, maybe it was an Adidas thing, but you never really saw a goalkeeper shirt. But we, we were speaking the other week, whenever we did the last podcast, about how in the, this age of everyone wearing kits and training gear and everything, you still don't walk down the street and see people wearing goalkeeper shirts, do you? Often, no. no. Well, they're quite trendy in their short sleeves and their yeah. slim fit and their, you know, you, it, it, just a, a stigma attached to going out wearing a goalkeeping kit. Yeah, uh, I, not, not to sound contrarian, but when I was in JJB Sports, where I grew up, JJB. used to stock all the goalkeeper kits. They used to, you know, all the top teams keeper kits were always in there. And I, I never bought one. But my buddy had the um, Man United kit I mentioned, the green, the lime sleeves. So they, they, you could find them, but you, you had to be the. Uh, the character in the playground to pull one off, didn't you? Yeah, I assume, sure. they, I assume the manufacturers knew that their market, you know, and they obviously knew that only about 1% of the nation were interested in buying these things. That's why, <laughs> that's why they didn't produce them. We, uh, we talked about with, with its catch, didn't we, last time? Yeah. I think what you're referring yeah, yeah. to. He had the, new car, the classic Newcastle goalkeeping kits, because I know he's a big fan of those. And I think I told my story of the last goalkeeping kit that I bought was the England Euro 96 classic away red refreshers kit and i actually bought the full kit and i was probably nice. w and i wore it to bexley Heath shopping center thinking i was the coolest cat in town <laughs> really i looked like a pack of refreshers had just thrown up on me so yeah not good not good um, but yeah it's going slightly as well with goalkeepers something i was gonna that's in them my brain and i've got a, a long list of tweets and things that i i thought of goalkeepers also used to wear the shorts 
of the uh, of the team as well. Like they would be a goalie shirt, and then just whatever the team was wearing their shorts. They they didn't have shorts of their own. That's a new thing. That's sort of post ninety, and probably even I, I don't even remember remember when that changed. That was just always a given that they just wore the shorts of the outfield players. I well, don't they always did. The only the only exception to that rule in the in the old days, so to speak, was Peter Shilton in Mexico eighty six. Remember, he had the silver shirt. Oh, yeah. silver shirt. And but other than that, yeah, you, the keeper wore the the club shorts and socks. So it was, you know, it was. I'm trying to think when that first changed. That might yeah. well have been that the that Schmeichel era. You know, whenever they yeah. decided to, I think it was. Because I think it was because that, that Schmeichel definitely had the lime green shorts yeah. to go well, with. It was that. a whole yeah. ensemble, wasn't yeah. it? And yeah. Socks and it was. But I mean, now you never see a goalkeeper wearing a goalkeeping shirt with the club socks and shorts it's just yeah. oh no the only time you see that is if a keeper if someone sent off a keeper sent yeah. off and someone goes in goal and they look completely out of place because they're wearing this bright pink shirt and white socks and, and blue socks so it's you know they obviously yeah. haven't thought that one through but yeah that's yeah. another bugbear of mine luckily okay. not on my list though yeah we'll finish let's finish on kits <laughs> you know we can talk we literally have as well talked all day about kits on this and we can say in general the kits are obviously not as good. Although I will say Bristol City and Wickham have had some very great, glary um, goalkeeper shirts in the last couple of seasons. So maybe they're trying to bring it back. Um, you met, you touched on it as well. How baggy, you don't get that in modern game. Literally, how baggy, Paul, were the shirts in the 90s? I always think of Janino. He's not even here and I've mentioned him. Um, but the shirt on him, it was sort of like he was wearing his dad's shirt. And there's, there's some pictures you, you see from the late 90s especially. Of, of smaller players wearing these shirts. And they're huge. I, I don't get that. What was that weird baggy shirt phenomenon? Well, it's something that Matt touched on earlier, wasn't it? And as with every aspect of football now, we're led by the science. Yeah. So like, you know, you know, <laughs> Sorry, if Boris. you have a baggy kit, <laughs> if you have a baggy kit now, you know, think of the percentage in terms of aerodynamics that's yeah. going to affect your performance. So I imagine every single piece of kit is tailored to that player. Whereas back then it was like, all right, Janino, um, smallest we've got will be uh, is, is a male small. So how about that? You know, that do yeah, yeah, go on then. Was it not the case that back then they were tailored towards the the, the fashion outlets rather than? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure were. I remember kits being designed. So I mean, that classic England grey kit. They said, oh, that would be great because you can wear it out with a pair of jeans and yeah, yeah. I never got and, that uh, concept that what you can wear with a pair of, like people do like. Anyway, you don't need to be told. There was that, I think this is going into the next decade, but Man United had, or England had it as well, the shirt you could turn inside out. So you could wear one shirt on pitch and then the other shirt for the night out. (laughs) It was just bonkers. Absolute, yeah, I don't know where that, I'm glad that was a quick phase that quickly um, went away. Um, Matthew, we've talked a lot about kits there. Take us away, veer us away from kits. Throw something else into the 90s mix. Well, I'll veer us away from kits, but I'm going to stick very much with the goalkeeping theme. Um, not goalkeepers. I know it's coming. This is another one for the bingo card, if anyone's still got one. But my fascination with goal nets, stanchions, whatever you want to call them, in the 90s and be- before that, um, the uniqueness of different goal nets at different football grounds to the extent that you could see a goal or a clip or just a still picture and tell where that ground was based on the goal net. Whereas now, every, I don't know whether it's a Premier League rule or a FIFA rule or what, but as far as I'm concerned, every football ground in the country, not even the Premier League, right throughout the divisions, has the standard 
square nets, which used to be quite a novelty. And if you remember back in the 80s, no one had square goal nets. They were sort of reserved for Barcelona and those exotic teams on the continent. But now it seems that everyone has to have a bog standard square goal net. And I just think, what's the fun in that? I mean, I used to love the Dell where the nets were so shallow that if you hit a shot, it bounced back to the halfway line. Middlesbrough, Joel will tell you, each end of the pitch, the goal nets were different. One because one end was tighter to the pitch than the other. So one had a very shallow goal net, one had a deep goal net. Um, Highbury, you had those stanchions, those green stanchions. Wembley, you had those classic Wembley goal nets that dated back probably to the 1923 Cup final that we all remember from the 66 Cup final. It was like every ground, I mean, I could, I'm that sad, I could tell you. You go through some grounds and clubs, I could describe their goal nets. Whereas now, <laughs> It's, I mean, QPR, West Ham, they used to have those shallow. Very shallow, nets, yeah. You know, and um, now it's, they spoiled it all because every, every goal net's the same, which means every goal looks the same. And um, yeah, where, where's the fun in that? This, Paul, this is something Matthew has harked on about. Um, ad nauseum, to be honest, on this, this one. <laughs> it's something that, you know, did Grinsby have some particular, I mean, I remember the coloured goal nets. That's something like that. That seems to have gone like they you might have striped goal nets. Did they have striped goal nets at Greenby? Yes, that was that's exactly right. I remember that, you see. For a, for a very short period of time, they kind of had black and white diagonally striped right. goal nets going across the back, and they were. And you're absolutely right. I remember, and it was such a small period of time that they had those four, but they were so standout. Yeah, uh, they, they, that was that was that just popped back into my memory because. Struggling to think of anything to add to that conversation. I totally agree with you, but you've covered it so comprehensively. Yeah. But then just before you led to it there, those gold medals came into my mind. I went, yes. <laughs> it's just funny. Like you say, I'm thinking of clubs and I can picture the gold nets and as sad as that sounds. But I do wonder whether it is a some kind of stipulation or health and safety or what. But I mean, what? I mean, up until... There's got to be something. Even, even in the 90s, I think Liverpool had red gold nets. Red. And I don't know the square ones. But, yeah. but then again, no one, no one, you know, in the beginning of the 90s, no one had the square goal nets. You know, United I mean, the classic kind of saggy nets and Liverpool and whatever. And then suddenly it, it, it changed. At the risk of sounding boring, I think I actually do know the reason um, that they've changed all these. It's, it's a, as with most things, it's, it's a broadcast thing. So, you know, as the Premier League became, you know, the Premier League started, it was very much a league of disparate teams. And as time marched on, the Premier League itself became the product and everything had to be homogenized and everything had to be the same so it fit the brand whereas you say you know you could identify the goal nets sorry identify the team by the goal nets the premier league want you to identify the league by all the different visual factors and obviously that bleeds down into the divisions over time doesn't it because we might as well all be soon so yeah it's a broadcast thing i'm pretty certain that it's a a standardized product i can believe i mean this is like a game of uh call my bluff i mean Ash, I don't know if you want to come up with another reason. I have to pick the correct one, but I can. <laughs> I, thought, I think Paul's right, but what was going through my mind was a more uh, rule book for, uh, reason. Did I, I wonder if the Premier League came in because there was a couple of things they did uh, when it first came in, and then but like, they've changed numerous times over the years. But like everything had to be, this is the Premier League, so your goal nets have to be like this. This is. Was there not a case at the Dell when didn't Mark Hughes have a goal? Yeah, yeah, I was seeing it yeah. came out of the net and it, it wasn't good. Southampton at the time, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I suppose they would look at that and say, well, if that happened in the Premier League, oh, you know, God help us. 
obviously it wouldn't happen. No, don't worry, we'd have VAR. You, um, you're not alone, Matthew, because one of the tweets, because uh, I put a tweet out on the Twitter feed at AK90s earlier on um, saying that we were going to record this tonight, and someone said, his name's Shane Lynch. It's not Shane Lynch from Boyzone, which would, be, which would have been amazingly serendipitous of, of us to, to have quoted Mr. Shane Lynch, but it's not. It's, uh, it's his alter ego. Um, and he says, I'm all the loss of different types of gold nets and stanchions. There you go. So well, you know. I happened to see there was a Facebook group the other day. I didn't join up to it, but there is actually a Facebook group for Golnets and Stanchions. And I thought, well, hopefully it's somebody <laughs> that's listened to this show down the years and has been inspired. But um, I've found it. Admin Matthew Chris. There we go. Yeah, that's family <laughs> group. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I always remember that clip on the um, grandstand where is it Gordon Strachan's shot that got stuck in the, the stanchion of the goal on the it was always a good thing when a ball got caught in the stanchion. Yeah. I mean, that was another classic, that Clive Allen incident, Palace away at Coventry in about 81, I think it was, when it hit the stanchion and came down and bounced out and they didn't give the goal. So, I mean, maybe maybe they've got a point. But, I mean, again, it adds to the fun, doesn't it? Yeah. Football's more fun, as we always say. More fun in the 90s. Um, I'm going to yeah. throw one in the mix now. Um, something, again, I, I, I'm adamant about. This makes me angry when I, I say it's not in, in the modern game. It's a couple of people... Um, I've tweeted us as well. Cox, Mark Cox, Coxie0382 has said it. FA Cup semi-finals at neutral venues. What? What? Why? Well, the, the boring argument to this is that we know the reason why, because somebody decided to knock down the Twin Towers, build that ghastly arch, and then claim back the money for it forever and ever and ever, which I'm sure they've done by this point. And yet we're still in 20, which I will be 2021, playing... We're at semi-finals at Wembley. And I just, I mean, for me, the FA Cup's a damp squib. I really try and, I, I can't get up for it anymore. I mean, having no fans this year, particularly the year where it was a very good third round draw as well, has put the tin lid on it for me. But, I mean, being a QPR fan, the FA Cup is something of a sort of lost cause pretty much from round three anyway. But I, I just, these things like this that have taken the luster out of the cup for me, like the trip to Wembley is now a semi-final. Give me Villa Park. Give me Old Trafford. I mean, when we talk, we've talked about semi-finals in this before and the, all the good games that we mention are, are, are those semi-finals played at those neutral venues. The, the, you know, the thrill of getting to Wembley. I know Paul, like me, is not something we've ever experienced as, as lower league football fans, but <laughs> that's definitely there was definitely something more magical about watching a semi-final at a neutral ground, don't you think? I would. I agree with everything you say there, but what I will say is, in terms of this argument, was the first ever Wembley yeah. FA Cup final not in the 1990s? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a novelty at that point, though, in 91. In, in fairness, I heard someone again, listening to another geeky podcast the other night, but I heard someone again saying how they moved that uh, Tottenham Arsenal Find in 91 to Wembley for money reasons. Now, that wasn't the case. If you remember, it it really wasn't. It was a case of where are we going to play this game? You know, there's 100,000 people that want to see it. So I'm not saying it was right, but Wembley was picked to be the best op- opportunity for people to, as many people as possible to see that match. Now, I can kind of understand that. And if that happens every now, every 10 years, Tottenham Arsenal play in a cup semi-final, fair enough, play at Wembley. But that was then a catalyst, wasn't it? Because if you remember in the early 90s, I remember going to Wembley to see United play Oldham in a cup semi-final. And um, I think there were about 30 or thousand people there. And the day before was Luton Chelsea and it was the same. And, you know, there was a Sheffield derby as well, which you can kind of make an excuse for. But I mean, maybe once every decade you could say, okay, 
special occasion, yeah. We're going to have to play this at Wembley because you've got two big London teams, but certainly not for uh, for any other reason. And the thing is now, they've completely come out and admitted it. They haven't even pretended it's to give more people the opportunity to see the game, have they? They basically just say it's for money to pay off that stadium, which, I, yeah. again, like you say, I mean, that, I can't believe that hasn't been paid over paid off 10 times over. Yeah, so as far as I know, no one likes it. Uh, that's that's the weird thing. I'm not saying that the powers that be ever care about what people like, but I mean this is a this is a case I don't think I've ever heard anyone make a case for Wembley semi-finals at all. Paul, can you make a case? I, d- I doubt you can, man. There's no case to be made. Like you know, the FA Cup's always been a step above everything, hasn't it, in terms of cup competition? Not just in England, but obviously you know worldwide and. Part of that luster was that you know magical trip to Wembley, where you know, if you're giving someone that trip for the semi-finals, you're essentially giving them you know part of the reward before they've achieved you know achieved that distinction. And I, 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 there's no case to be made at all. Like as Matthew rightly says, like you know that Arsenal Tottenham game was the first, and there's a very compelling reason. And same with the Sheffield derby, because again, for boring logistical reasons, you know the obvious choice for two Sheffield teams is maybe Ellen Road or Old Trafford. But getting all those fans from Sheffield to Leeds or Manchester all travelling together at roughly the same time is going to be a recipe for disaster, literally. Whereas the transport links are so strong into London that you can funnel them almost and it's much more straightforward. So there's only teams coming from the same spot in the country, maybe if it was Man United City or Aston Villa, Birmingham or whatever, you can totally see why they want to funnel them towards Wembley. But to do it as standard is, is just ridiculous and it is for the money. There's no other reason. And it is, as you said, at the top of this subject, Ash, like the FA Cup has completely lost its luster. There's no real selling point to the, in that, to the FA Cup now. We've done away with replays. They're never coming back. Um, every, you know, it's just a straightforward knockout competition. It won't be long before we're playing midweek games yeah. um, as standard. And it's a completely midweek competition. And I would go as far as to say, without any hyperbole, that the first big step towards that was, was putting the semis at Wembley because that road to Wembley is just completely bastardised, if you excuse my language. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's just such a reckless, reckless decision, taking all that money to um, to pay for that stadium and mortgaging the future of that competition. And um, they'll pay for that in years to come. Don't you think it's slightly patronising as well? Because I remember years ago when clubs like Portsmouth and Barnsley and you know, various smaller clubs, if you like, made it to a cup semi-final and, and the argument was always rolled out that, oh, well, it gives these fans a chance to get to Wembley. Now, as a lower league fan, again, without being patronising, would you want to go to Wembley in a semi-final? And would you count that as a Wembley appearance? I wouldn't. No, absolutely not. It, it, it's completely, completely takes away the luster of it. Grimsby have been to Wembley three times and um, and each time was super special. It was There's been two... Sorry, one playoff final. Uh, sorry, two playoff finals. Four times now, my mistake. Two playoff finals, um, an auto windscreen shield final, and then that competition again in the mid two thousands. I can't remember what they were calling it at the time. To be honest, Johnston's paint or whatever it was. Um, but yeah, all of those were occasions because they were all finals of some form or another. No, it's it's not the same at all. Maybe if it was your very first time at Wembley, I can kind of see why there might be a novelty. But it, it, every sort of sense of occasion is is completely taken out of it. Right. Well, we're going to do away with them. That's for sure. You mentioned replays there. One of the things I've got as a sort of side note to the FA Cup is when they used to do like more than one replay. That was a bizarre. Yes. 
that was a bizarre. I remember, I think it was Arsenal Leeds and Crystal Palace Nottingham Forest. I can't remember what years. It was early nineties, pre Premier League, and they went to like two or three replays. I think John Salako scored a weldy to actually finally end that tie. But they used to. I remember like it was like third replay because they yeah, just United played QPR in um, 88-89. Yeah, um, yeah, we did, and it was it was quite quite a momentous occasion because if you remember that was the first sort of appearance for the, what they were known then as Fergie's fledglings before the class of 92 you had uh, Mark Robbins and Beardsmore, Gill, the sort of young kids that Fergie brought through at the time that probably you'd argue didn't didn't weren't as prominent as as Beckham, Skulls, what have you but um, I remember that I think it was a trilogy with QPR it was a draw at home, draw away then there was a second replay and um, it was an epic. And I, I used to love those because it was a it was a it was a real epic, wasn't it? You play Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, and it was it was just like a it was like a series. I mean it was like an American, it was like a baseball yeah, series. Baseball series, yeah. Yeah, and I got, got no issue with that at all. And I know absolutely why people would yeah. cry about that now, because they don't even want to play one cup tie. But but yeah, when you went to four replays, I mean I think it was a semi-final in the seventies. Uh Arsenal, I think it was, went to a fifth game, I think, four or five games. I mean, what a that's just brilliant. <laughs> who, who wouldn't want that? Yeah, I just, it just it popped in my brain the other day, and I was just like, God, yeah, that that was just weird. <laughs> just, I'm not saying I'd want it back, I get what you mean about an epic because of I couldn't stand the fixture congestion nonsense, but yeah, that was that was a, that was very, very strange, right? Um, we, we we're gonna do um five each, which I don't think we'll get to, but um, we'll take a quick break there because we've got an interview as well, somebody who at the other side of this will mention in the same vein of what you don't really see in the modern game that you saw in the 90s. Um, before uh, Christmas, I sat down with, uh, well, I say sat down on a Zoom call of modern living with former Manchester City manager, Brian Halton, uh, to talk about his new book and to talk about his time in charge at Main Road. So here's me and Brian Halton on Alive and Kicking. <laughs> Right, joining me on the line now, uh, a, a familiar managerial face yeah. of the 1990s has got a new book out as well that we'll chat about. Uh, welcome to Alive and Kick In, Mr. Brian Halton. How are you doing, Brian? I'm okay, thank you. Yes, good morning to you all. Yeah, good morning to you as well. Um, that's that's talk book then. You've got a, a new, well, recently released book, so perfect time for Christmas. It's called 2000 Games. Uh, what made you decide to, to finally put pen to paper or in an old school way to, to release the book now? Well, the writer of the book, Tim Rich, who did Ron Atkinson, Kanchelski, yeah. uh, and Bielsa's, he, he, he came to me to do a chapter, my chapter as a manager of Man City. So he's doing a book on Man City managers, uh, the history of Man City managers. And I did my piece with him and just got chatting. And uh, he's a top class reporter, Tim and, and writer. And he just said, uh, have you ever thought about doing a book? You've got some great stories. But we left it because uh, he said, there's almost, almost one, every, uh, one last chapter, isn't there? Anyway, so when I, when I finished with Phil at Swindon, Phil Brown at Swindon, uh, got in touch and said, do you fancy doing it? So we got a publisher, Pitch Publishing, and, uh, and off we went and uh, really, really enjoyed doing it. You now going back to my schoolboy days, right up to, to, to the latest uh, chapter of my, my career. It's a great read. I've only I've just started reading bits of it. So yeah, no. If you're looking for a, another football to biography, a Christmas list, I'd definitely recommend Brian's book. Um, that's talk '90s though, Brian, because that's what we're you know as a podcast we are here to do. And your interesting story, definitely in the '90s. We'll talk Man City in a minute, but I don't think many 
more mainstream people would realise the, the kind of drama you had at the beginning of the decade at Oxford. Can we take you back to your Oxford days and kind of the topsy-turvy uh, sort of time you had there? What your what your memories as manager of, as Oxford? Well, first and foremost, I joined Mark Lawrence and I, I, I just left uh, Hull City and um, I, I was not working for anyone and, and Mark got the Oxford job and he said, would you come down and just be with me because I don't know any managers, don't know many players. He's just finished his career at, uh, at Liverpool. So I did that and joined him and um, uh, it carried on to the, to the start of the season. And uh, at the start of the season, we were pushed to sell Dean Saunders to Derby. So Ian Maxwell was manager, uh, ch- chairman of Derby. Kevin Maxwell was our chairman and obviously Robert Maxwell was still alive then and said that Dean had got to go to, to Derby County for a million pounds. Mark said he was going to resign over the fact because he, he'd had assurances that he didn't have to sell him. And uh, in the end, we, we went down to see Kevin and they paid Mark off and, and I was offered the job. So it all started there. And I had a great relationship with Kevin and um, some very, very good players. And we talk about the, who they were in, in a little bit. But obviously then Robert Maxwell died in the, in the circumstances he did. And uh, me, me and David Moss, who was my assistant, actually were coming back from watching a player in the Midlands. And he came on. The news about 10 o'clock that Robert Maxwell had gone missing off Lady Ghislaine, this boat. And um, I got a phone call from Kevin saying all the the banks stopped tomorrow. There'll be no wages, all the cars. You've got to go back in the club cars. And it was just an absolute nightmare, yeah. absolute disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, your time at Oxford, how do you look back on it? Because, you know, there were survivals, very good survivals as well. Is that Do you look at it as success at Oxford? I do. I mean, I signed people like Paul Simpson, yeah. who that they sold to Derby for a lot of money. Jimmy Jelton, they eventually sold a signing for hundred grand. They sold him for seven fifty, I think. Andy Melville, uh, some good players, good team, and uh, obviously they were going because of I was having to basically. It was almost like a fire sale, just selling yeah. my best players off, and we did well to stay up um, that particular season. And um, Kevin was a magnificent chairman. I got on great with him. He never interfered in football. Um, if I wanted to sign a player, say like Paul Simpson from Man City, quarter of a million, um, he would say, give me 10 minutes. He spoke to whoever he got to speak to, come back. And generally it was yes. And he said, he, he would say to me, you know the boundaries, you do the deals. And 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 I got an unbelievable with him. I mean, a lot of people knocked him, but I, I can't have a bad word against him at all. Let's talk Man City then, because so it's August 1993. Um, how, how did you find out about it? Because I think for many, it was a somewhat surprise that you got the call in terms of where Man City were and, and where Oxford were at the time. How, how did you first find out and how excited were you, the prospect to, to move to, to well, Main Road as it was at the time? Well, it came completely out of the blue. Man City had a bad start. I mean, I knew Peter Reid well and they'd finished the season before not too good and it's not started off too well in this particular season. I got a phone call from John Maddox and... Uh, he said that uh, Peter Reid uh, was leaving. And that's the thing that I've done. I would never speak to another club if the manager was still in situ. Yeah. Never, never. And anyway, Peter was, was going. And I knew John Maddox from my Port Vale days because he was a reporter. And he worked for Robert Maxwell in the end. He worked for the, uh, for the people, uh, top football uh, reporter. And uh, he rang me and said, Peter's going, would I be interested in the job at Man City? Um, obviously, then I said, well... <laughs> I'm not going to say no to that job, am I? So, so he got permission from Oxford to speak to me. Um, I met him with Freddie Pye. God bless them both. They 
fantastic characters. So Freddie was a uh, uh, vice chairman at Man City. I met them at uh, Stafford, uh, Tillington Hall, for the first chat, and uh, we chatted about things. And then they said, OK, we'll go back to Peter Swells and we'll recommend you for the job and see what Peter says. And obviously he offered me the job and off it went. So people put that together that I was best friends with John. I, I was a good friend, but I mean, it wasn't nothing like that to be able to get a job. You know, I thought I'd, I thought I deserved a, a, a shot at the top league. I would got promotion in my first year at Hull, four years in the equivalent to the championship, nearly five years equivalent to the championship in, at Oxford. So I felt I'd done my apprenticeship. So got a bit of flack, obviously, you know, because it was, well, you know, Brian's been at Oxford and wanted, wanted somebody that's been at that level. But I, th- I, I felt I deserved the chance and, it worked out great for me because the Man City fans still to this day are brilliant with me. How, did you realise the sort of enormity of the club before you went there? I mean, even though, no disrespect to Oxford and you were in the league below, but Man City even then, obviously not the Man City are now, but did you sense what a big club and a big opportunity it was for you? Well, I knew, I knew obviously I'd played there many times, including yeah. the one for Luton when we put them down at the game. So, obviously, uh, I knew how big it was. And, but you, you're never going to turn a job like that down. I was ambitious. Yeah. Um, I chose straight away because I knew what their history was, that they liked attacking football. So, that's what I chose to do. I never went defensive. But I, I was lucky in that respect that I had three great managers I worked for, Gordon Lee at Port Vale, Alan Murray, or Peter Taylor signed me, but it's only 10 games. Alan Murray for nearly five years. David Pleaton, three years at Luton. And not one of them ever, particularly Alan and, and, um, and David, never set a team up to, to be defensive. You know, I see some of it now where they just defend for 85 minutes hoping to grab a, a goal. We never, we never ever did that. So I chose to do that. So my signings were all mainly attacking players. I mean, um, Peter Beagree, Paul Walsh, Juve Rosler, Nicky Summerby, uh, Maurizio Gaudino. They, they were all flair players, you know, added to the, what I got at Man City because they had a, some very, very good players and outstanding characters. I was going to mention your signings because I, I was looking at the, your, who you signed and you mentioned like the names that you become kind of cult heroes at, at Main Road as well. So, I mean, how good... I mean, Uwe Rossler is kind of always looked at from that proper 90s footballer that everyone goes, oh, do you remember? But very good striker. How, how good was he? Well, it came about because we, Narquin had, had done his cruise shirts and was out for a while. I got a, a, a phone call from Jerome Anderson, who was a top angel, uh, agent in football at that time. And uh, just a random call, as they do, what you're looking for. And I said, well, I need a striker. And he said, I've got a East German international that's just had an operation. And he's looking for a club and he can come and train if you want him to. So, I mean, to get an international player, you should come and train so you can have a look at him. Yeah. is unbelievable. So we saw him in training and then we put him in a reserve game on the Tuesday night at Main Road. Uh, Francis Lee, who was a chairman at the time, came and watched him as well and we both agreed, let's, let's take him. So we did, we did a short-term deal and he played in, in the game on the Saturday QPR because we were short of strikers. And it went on and became uh, an absolute hero. You know, we'd sing Uwe, Uwe Russell. I, can, I started singing it myself sometimes. And... Uh, <laughs> He, he, you know, he's, he's become a legend. He lives not far away from me. He's working in Germany at the moment and a uh, great person. But that, that's what they were as well. They, they were good characters. You know, Bees was lively, good player, great crosser of the ball. Walshy I played with at, at Luton, so I knew his background, lively and good. Uwe, just 
just his mentality, you know, that German mentality that he wanted to do that every game. Not saying that the others didn't, but great mentality. And Nicky Summerby was was one of the best crossers I've ever worked with. Narquin said he was probably the best crosser he ever worked with. So that's some, that's some, uh, you know, um, accolade. Definitely, yeah. And you brought, you, you sort of fed some youngsters as well, you know, the likes of Gally, Gary Flitcroft and Richard Edgehill as well. I mean, how good were that kind of crop of players? Flitty, Flitty had broken in and uh, outstanding player. Uh, absolutely. And, and as a lad, as a person, um, I talked Peter Swales into giving him a five-year deal, which he did. Uh, Steve hadn't broken into the side. They were talking about selling uh, Steve Lomas. And I pulled that straight away because I'd seen him play in the reserves many times. Um, so that that was the, my two midfield players, almost like four-two-four, basically. Nicky was better because Nicky had a defensive, more of a defensive mind, would tuck in Beegs, which is an out-and-out winger. Yeah. And then Richard Edgell had never played a game, so I put Richard in, and he, he, he I see him at Man City games now a lot, uh, where he does the guest lounges. And well, it was a revelation. He went in and, and, and made that position his own. So that then added to people like Tony Colton, top goalkeeper Keith Curl. Um, some some good players. Steve McMahon was there initially, and then he, off he went to become player manager Swindon. But good characters, and I think they liked the, the the style of football I was playing, which helps. I think if you go in and be negative and defensive, I think you get flack. But the the, the fans, the two games they map up all the time, and and they, they show them on Sky every now and again. Was beating Tottenham five two with the side they had: Klinsman, Dumitrescu, Petrescu, Nicky Barmby, oh, Sheringham. Beat them 5-2 and then winning at Blackburn. Some of the Man City fans didn't want us to win at Blackburn because we were almost handing the title to Man United. <laughs> so they didn't, they, weren't, they didn't want us to win. But uh, and again, a, a great game. But many, many, but most of them was because I, I played attacking football. Do you think possibly that could have been, because I remember the 94-95 season, you were sick at Christmas and then form sort of dipped after that. Well, what do you put that down to? Did you think mainly because you were such an attacking team that sometimes it was kind of an Achilles heel? Uh, possibly. Uh, but uh, I lost, um, Tony Coton got injured, mm. which is a major miss. Not, not yeah. I mean, Andy Dibble was, was, and Martin Modges was the number three. But Tony was top class. He was, he was England class. So we missed him. And uh, Noel Quinn got injured. I think Keith Curl was out a little while and um, I wasn't getting um, the players that I was asking to bring in. Yeah. I wanted to strengthen the squad. So basically that I knew that I wasn't, I wasn't uh, Francis Lee's man. He yeah. wasn't giving me any, any backing in terms of new signings and it just drifted and it was a shame really because we were better than that. Yeah, I was going to ask you how hard because I, I mean, I remember the whole, you know, Franny Lee taking over and the big sort of hurrah around that. How hard it was for you because it's, um, I imagine it's always difficult for a manager when a new chairman comes in if you're not sure if you're his guy. So, how, I mean, how difficult was that for you and, and to come to an end as well at City? Yeah, it was difficult. I could see it coming. I kept that to myself. I just went in and was the same person I always am, you know, and never go in, never went into a training session where you're down and you're miserable and didn't let it, I didn't let it happen. Well, hence, hence that, that Blackburn game, that was towards the end of the season yeah. and um, yeah. I was just doing things my own way. But So that's all you can do as a manager, you do things your own way and then if it's not good enough or people want other people, then so be it. But, you know, it, it was sad really because they went and had two relegations, you know, just after me to, and went down to the the equivalent of Division One now, which Man City should never ever been in there. No way. We're, and then they sold. Walshy went. Um, Peter Beagle went straight away. 
Flitty went to Blackburn. Tony Cope went to Man United. I wouldn't have sold any of those players or recommended to the board. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the board's decision. But I would have recommended that, you know, I'm just given Gary Flickoff to five-year deal. He was a top player, as he proved when he went to Blackburn and the rest of the boys. They were good, good players. Mm-hmm. And a good team, by the way. They had good spirit. They mixed together. Yeah, I remember. Um, yeah, I always remember that city side being a. You know, they looked like a good team. They looked like a team that, that, that got on as well. I mean, for you, who who would you say was the, the the most talented one you managed of that bunch? Who maybe even surprised you? Who who for you was was the guy in that squad? It's the very hard, you know, because I'm saying Tony Cohn was a top goalkeeper, but I think pound for pound, when I think Uwe cost about three hundred fifty grand. Yeah. I have to say Uwe because the goals he scored and what he brought to the to the football club and the fans absolutely idolised him and um, you know so that I have to say Uwe but that's a, that's a, I mean I know Walshie and Beagree would slaughter me <laughs> yeah, if I'm yeah. saying that Uwe was the best signing but Gary Flickoff to resign him you know because people were looking at him and no they were looking at him and England at 21 international he, he was always going to be a top player. To finish, what was what would be your abiding memory of your time at Main Road? Then, what, what one, one thing stands out for you that you, you take with it from you? The biggest one is the Tottenham game, without a shadow of a doubt. But the fans, I have to say, the fans, as I say, I still live in Manchester now, and I never ever get any flack ever because generally you, you get the sack because the fans are calling for your head or you've been relegated or whatever. They understood the situation, but it, it, it was always going to be so. The fans, without a doubt, I, I'm, I'm very lucky because I go with my wife to watch Man City whenever I can. Um, I'm not working at the moment because obviously can't go to games, but they look after us fantastic. And I still do. I still do lots of things for all my old clubs, but mainly Manchester because the fans, I go to the fans forum and I do it for nothing. And I go and speak to them. And uh, I'm at Pep Guardiola at Vincent Company's testimonial night, which was a pleasure. He came and it was my 70th birthday on the night. And uh, Gary Lineker uh, was up on stage um, and they announced that um, Hugh Ferris from BBC Radio Manchester, he announced it, You, He said, by the way, it's Brian Norton's 70th birthday and he's in the audience tonight. Everybody stand up, or Brian stand up and take a bow, which I did. <laughs> and later on, the even, later on in the evening, uh, Pep came over just to say, I've just come over to say happy birthday, Brian. Nice. How good was that? You know, so... I said to him, I'll, I'll come down and I'll come and watch a lot of your games at the moment. Love the football you play. And I said, I'd, I'd love to come down to the training ground, see you train sometimes. He said, anytime you want, come come down anytime. But with the pandemic, I've not been able to do it, you know. So uh, I look forward to doing that when 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 it's all a bit bit free. But uh, so what I'm saying is, man, I, I, I get I get good advice. Every club I've been at generally, you know, Brighton, I watched them play last night. Fantastic fans. Luton had a great three years. Tall lad. Two spells where I got promotion my first year as a, a manager. And then I went back with Phil Brown as number two. Yeah. Got promotion our first year to the top division ever. So I, got, I get good response. Port Vale, I was there like 10 years. Yeah. I get good response wherever I go. So I've been a lucky person, really. But, you know, and the, 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 the times I've had in football have been unbelievable. Brilliant. Well, lovely to talk to you, Brian.
Thank you very much to Brian Horton and to Pitch Publishing. His new book, 2000 Games, is available now, which I'm sure if you need something to read in lockdown and you're a City fan, and not a City fan, because it's quite interesting that the uh, the bit that I've read as well that goes in more in depth about what he's been talking about there, it's available now. Um, Brian Horton actually sort of spins me into something that I was going to talk about as well. Firstly, name manager names that have just gone missing from the 90s. I think this is one of the original uh, ideas from uh, Paddy, uh, the originator of this conversation. Brian Little, whatever happened to Brian Little? Uh, whatever happened to Mike Walker? He's another name as well. And also the name <laughs> that you don't see anymore. And again, we don't have to harp on it, but we kind of know the reason for because it's instant success. But managers coming from the lower leagues and getting jobs like Man City and getting jobs like a Mike Walker got at Everton, they, they earned their crust and they moved up. I mean, it's something that we rarely, rarely see now. I think David Moyes is probably the last proper example when he was at Preston and then went to Everton. I mean, is that a 90s quote because we just crave this 90s, uh, sorry, this instant success in the modern game? What do you reckon, Paul? I think it's globalisation, isn't it? I think the talent pool's grown whereby... You know, before you looked at the league and you know, you, you're either getting managed at the bottom of the league, I'm talking about the Premier League, and they were either failing down at the bottom or they were riding high and wouldn't be coming to your team anyway. So you, inevitably you dip down to the lower leagues to look for talent that, that's ready to move up to the next level. Well, you don't have to do that anymore. The English game is so lucrative that, you know, obviously the great example is Wolves who can bring in a manager like Nuno. But there's more, and, and frankly, if I'm a chairman and my, you know, my opportunity, my Choices are a guy like Nuno or the manager of Preston North End, who's, you know, only managing best player he's ever managed is John Hudgens or something like that. Then I think you've got to be brutally honest and say it makes perfect sense. Um, that said, it is a shame because now the only way British managers can get up through that league system by and large is by managing their way up, yeah. which, is, um, which is not a bad thing. But in all honesty, I can't be too upset about that because anything that breaks that old boys club of managers True. is, um, you know, is just, it's good news. I, I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day. I'm not going to name drop for a couple of reasons, but he's a chair. He's a, sorry. He's a director of a football league club um, who was telling me about the recent trials and tribulations with a couple of their managers and some of the stuff that these guys get up to on that sort of British manager merry-go-round is just, you just wouldn't stand for it in any other industry. You just wouldn't be able to get away with it. Um, and even he was saying, like, you know, when you know, next time they pick a manager, that manager will not be from the British Isles purely because he, he doesn't have trust that they're in it for the right reasons. The, and he, he said the majority of them um, have got you know selfish agendas, so it's it always ends in tears. So I I, I don't think that's a bad thing. It's definitely something that's changed and gone. But I I mark that as a positive myself. Yeah, true. I'm, I'm with you. It's more I want to know whatever happens to, to Brian Little or Mike Walker, to be honest. Whatever happens. <laughs> Anyone knows, hit us up on Twitter at Gay Noises. Uh, right, we're going to speed through a few more um, things that we've got on our lists. Um, Matthew, give us a, another one that you, you've got. Well, you'd, anyone would think this show had been planned in advance, but the next one on my list was going to be, believe it or not, player managers. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know it's a professional show. <laughs> And I, I think, in a way, it goes back to what we've just been discussing. You know, what one, whatever happened to player managers, and two, obviously, there's not really, obviously, there's no, that's not an avenue into the game anymore, is it? I mean, if you think back, and this is obviously isn't a night. This obviously isn't a nineties thing because player managers did go back a little bit further. I mean, they were probably unique to the eighties and nineties, probably. I mean, the first big one I can think of is Kenny Dalglish. Yeah. But, you know, but in the yeah. let's, let's keep it nineties, otherwise I'll get a booking. But. Um, 
I think the 90s was rife for the player manager. I mean, you can Glenn Hoddle, Wood Hullet. Peter Reid, yeah. 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 Brian Robson. Right, well, obviously yeah. Brian Robson added yeah. that picture, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it was prime for the player manager and um, very much of its time. But I assume it goes back to what we were saying in this conversation where, you know, players like that back then, obviously they'd made a good living and I dare say paid their mortgage off or their divorce or whatever. But I mean, they weren't multi-millionaires that could then disappear and do their own thing and then come back in a managerial capacity in a few years' time. Whereas back then they had to sort of reinvent their career. And at times uh, being a player manager was the, the only option they had. And it was, OK, I can still play for a couple of years. I'll play on, I'll manage. And then ultimately I'll hang up my boots and just become a manager, which these days seems quite optimistic because you probably wouldn't even get to the end of the season now if you were a player manager. You probably... I wonder whether you could be sacked as a player manager and stay on as a player. But... Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think of it as a, a golden era for the player manager in the 90s. And I assume it was because it was that sort of crossover, that cusp of yeah. the old school players looking for a career after their playing days have ended. and But also an era of money and potential and, and longing to stay in the game. And um, like players like uh, Hullet and uh, Hoddle, who had obviously had a lot to offer. But, um, I mean, you look at it now. You, well, look at it now. I mean, Wayne Rooney would be the prime example, wouldn't he? I mean, he did Lampard, Gerrard. They went, they went straight Yeah, out. I mean, Rooney did play, didn't he, for what, half of this season? Or was it last season that he... Called out playing, then... Uh, no, yeah. no. And, and then he could still be a player manager, but he's straight away now he's been given the job. He said, no, I don't, I'm not going to play. I'm going to become a manager. Now, whether that's because the stresses of the job or whether people are saying, oh, a manager has more to do now than they used to in the old days. I don't think that's true. I think they've got more people around them than, than ever before. I just don't think there's the need to do it anymore. Why do you need to? Although watching Derby, I mean, I think Rooney can still still do a good job for them, but he obviously doesn't feel that that's for him. But um, certainly that wasn't the case in the 90s. I mean, take Brian Robson, for example. I mean, one of England's greatest midfielders, great captain, one of United's greatest players, you know, why did he feel he needed to carry on playing at Middlesbrough at the age of 36, 37, whatever he was? I mean, that just wouldn't be a, an option now, would it? No, it wouldn't be. Um, on that kind of lower league to manager theme, well, we've got a tweet I just read that kind of uh, sort of along that theme. Uh, players dropping down the leagues as well, which you're talking about, which reminded me of Rooney. Like the likes of Chris Waddle and Neville South were playing for Torquay, Peter Beardsley for Hartlepool. That's, you know... That's rarer as well. I know Rooney, like you said, was at Derby, but you don't see, I mean, I remember Waddle was all the way to Bradford. He scored that goal in the FA Cup, didn't he, against Everton as well. That's that's something that you don't see a lot of as well, them going down the leagues to continue their game. I think John Barnes did it as well. Ian Wright obviously went to Burnley and Nottingham Forest when they were in the, a different division as well. So I, I think that's definitely something you don't see as much as you saw in the 90s. Um, Paul, pluck another one, you know, another quick one for us out the at the bag that you've got. Another quick one. Okay, one that I used to love watching in the 90s. It's a bit of a niche one, um, but you certainly don't get it anymore. Indoor tournaments. Yes, evening standard fives. Yeah, mate. I used to love it, seeing all those, you know, yeah, the London fives where you got the, 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 the five-a-side teams from all, all the top London teams, plus Watford and Luton and QPR. <laughs> yep, <I'm> and, <laughs> and um Mate, it was just phenomenal seeing those guys in a different format with all that razzmatazz and you know a totally different style of football. It just does not happen anymore. And can you imagine? In my opinion, you think it would happen even more because what is more of an influence on football now than the whole FIFA culture? And you saw that Stevenage marketing campaign with Burger King and all that sort of thing and that futsal thing. Can you imagine how massive 
a five-a-side tournament now would be with, say, Neymar, Ronaldo, Mbappe and a couple of others against a similar team. Obviously, you'd be a higher level than Scott Sellers and Rule Fox on the team for Newcastle and whatnot, but they could make an absolute killing doing yeah. that now. And it was so exciting to watch. And, and when was the last time we saw anything approaching that? But, but, but saying that, I mean, there's two questions there. I mean, you do still get those legend versions, don't you? Which I assume you're not counting I, those. I don't think you do. No. Well, there was. I've seen a few in the last sort of five or six years. I've seen yeah, yeah. Owen and Perez and, um, you know, you do, I've seen a few Sky, on Sky. Yeah, Sport. yeah. There's been a couple, hasn't there? But, but what fascinates me, and going back to what you were saying, and I remember there was one in the late 80s called the Guinness Soccer Six that was at the GMEX in Manchester. And they were full teams. Yeah. I remember United, Liverpool. Yeah. You know, I remember Liverpool playing, you know, Rush, Whelan, whoever. United played McClare, Strachan, Robson. You know, and these were they were playing indoor football with no shin pads in a midweek at Christmas. Then, <laughs> it, it's mad, isn't it? It is actually yeah. quite mad. You can't imagine sending your team out on a Wednesday night after you've just had a, you know, a big game of the weekend. You've got another massive Premier League game. They're going, actually, we've got this friendly indoor tournament in the week. Doesn't mean yeah. it. It was, it was over two nights. It was over yeah. two nights, and there was like a group stage and then a knockout. And it was the weekend of Christmas, December fourteenth or whatever. So you had obviously the busy Christmas period. You had the FA Cup coming up, where you could easily get four replays. I mean, it's just crazy. But from not I, not plugging the be old book, but here it is in the the Ivan Live and Kicking book. This is Wickham Wanderers winning amazing the fives in. I'd even have to read it myself. Nineteen ninety four. And I think they won it a couple of years running, actually, Wickham. I know. I remember QBR always bringing quite a a strong team and thinking, "Oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to win this." But Wickham were really good at indoor football in the mid nineties for, for some reason. But yeah, it, I loved it. Even I think you, the, yeah, the Guinness may have been in the eighties. I think the London version was sponsored by the Evening Standard, so why it's called the yeah, Evening. They did, they did have various ones going back again before the nineties. I think there was a one in the seventies, eighties, but then the nineties it kind of was a it became a real thing because I think there was that real thirst for football then, wasn't there? It was yeah. It was, there was an innocent kind of love of just watching any football, whereas now there'd be a, a natural uproar about it. If they said, oh, we're going to bring in this six-a-side tournament just before Christmas. I mean, you know what it's like now, like when Liverpool last year played that World Club Championship, the amount of infighting about whether they should play and what the team yeah. they should play. I mean, people were almost fisticuffs with each other over whether they should take it seriously and all this. And I'm thinking, God, yeah, that's supposedly a big tournament. Imagine there was a six-a-side tournament over two nights I mean people would be people's heads would fall off yeah it's it, I, I, I don't think you could tell a modern football fan of an age about this and they'd look at you without going I don't understand why they do that I mean but we loved it but yeah great one Paul I, I had I didn't have that on my list but I should have done because that's in the it's in the book so um, but yeah very 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 good uh, I really enjoyed that I'm just going to read a tweet out that I actually replied to um, Paddy at the time so there's a few things in here instead of me going on a, and I don't cover it the things I quoted back at him were baggy kits, the ZDS Cup, the Anglo-Italian Cup, the Evening Standard Fives, which reminded me of the tweet, sharing the charity shield. Remember when teams used to share the charity shield? <laughs> oh, yeah, I was that one. The 1990 yeah. charity shield, United Liverpool, finished 1-1 and they shared it. Oh, I loved it though. I love that picture of all them together and the trophy. Yeah. Never happened now. 90 Minutes magazine, which we've talked about a lot in here. We've had Paul Hawksby on it. ITV The Match, one for you, Matthew. Um, oh, yes. Robert Rosario, whatever happened to him. Pro set cards, pro match cards. The orange ball, everyone loved an orange ball. Second replays we've mentioned. Andy Gray's boot room. Goals galore VHSs, which I think I put on the Twitter feed the other day, actually. The UEFA Cup, 
the uh, proper Euro, no, so that should be the Cup Winners' Cup because the UEFA Cup went later, and football pogs. So I could have gone on, but there are a few things that went in my instant mind. Um, Sky Sumo Wrestlers was another one that uh, uh, Paddy mentioned in his uh, original tweet as well. So, I mean, we, we can literally could go on this subject forever. And we may even now, as I said in the break, do a part two, because I think we could go on on, on this. Um, let's do a very quick couple of more before we go. Uh, Matthew, as you sip another, is that red wine you're drinking? It's uh, Yes, it's a fine Malbec, Argentinian Malbec. Nice. In, in lockdown, you've advanced from uh, pear cider. I'm, I'm, Thanks I'm, for blowing me up there. Yes, actually, yeah, I haven't had a. Yeah, I've gone against the grain, haven't I? You've gone, you've gone up market on us. So, uh, go on, give us one thing from from the nineties that that's lost in the modern game. Well, I, yeah, I mean, all that list I could harp on about all night and probably will. But I, this is on the same theme. But I've gone with one slightly obscure, but I think you'll agree. Players being interviewed in the tunnel or dressing room after a game. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. In the 90s, it was very much a new thing because in the 70s and 80s, you didn't really have the access that you did in the 90s. But when Sky came along and, and you had the, the live game, Super Sunday, Monday night football, when you did get that, uh, that first post-match interview, it was more often than not filmed against a backdrop of either a load of boots hanging up on, a, yeah. on pegs or a brick wall of a changing room or wood panel corridors of a boardroom, what it seemed at the time. And it just, I just remember that, the, the, again, a bit like the goal nets, you could almost tell where they were being interviewed by the backdrop. You know, you think, oh, that's, that's outside the changing rooms at Anfield or that's the, uh, you know, the tunnel at Old Trafford. Whereas now there's that whole generic, yeah, you know, I know why they do it. And we yeah. know why. Yeah. Basically, it's the same answer to everything. But these, you know, you don't see that now. It's a whole board of adverts and logos and, and what have you. And it just ruins the fun. I used to, I think it was after the, um, after Blackburn won the league in 95 at Anfield and Dalgleish is interviewed after he comes out of the change room and he's yeah. got that classic wood, like teak panelling behind yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> and I can picture it was, I don't think in 20 years time, 25 years time, someone's going to say, I remember when, uh, Guardiola was interviewed after winning the league and he was standing against what looked like my grand's old bedroom <laughs> cupboard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the kind of simpleness of it all, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's no one's it. actually no one actually thought instead of getting Dalgleish standing in front of that teak sideboard, why don't we get him standing in front of a load of logos? I mean again, again it must have come in at the end of the 90s I'd say, but yeah. there was just a golden period of the of the early mid nineties when Sky had all this access to players where they would, they would just have them standing against some obscure, sometimes in a parking, in a car park or outside the, the doors of the players lounge, you know, that kind of thing. And, to add to that, I, I loved how in those early Sky interviews, it only went on for a few years, but for a while they had to have them having the big headphones yeah. on their ears and their headpiece, as if, as if microphones weren't actually a thing. Yeah. <laughs> as if they had the media PRs in their ears at all times. The, uh, the classic Big Ron when he gets in that yeah. round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Bring the things yeah. down and they catch the guy in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I miss the Sky thing as well. Like I hate when they changed and started making just modern. Yeah, TV. I've got like, such a beef with that. Like whatever songs in the charts. Give me here we go, here we go. Yeah. This is it. That should be theirs. Like Match of the Day have had Match of the Day for you yeah. know since the sixties. That could have been theirs, and they'd been well, like, that could oh, be their nod. That could be their nod to the past, couldn't it? I know we know yeah. it's everything's changed and we know everything's modernised, but it would be great to just keep that bit of tradition, like you say, Match of the Day. It's not the same, is it? Most people have seen the football before it's come on at half ten at night, but it's still a nod to the 
to tradition. Whereas, you know, the, the Super Sunday music now is just basically, Swear I assume, whoever's yeah. paid the most to get their single on as a... Couldn't tell you. Yeah, I couldn't tell you. Um, Paul, finish us off because um, we'll, we'll go after your final word. Is there anything, just maybe scattergun things, anything else you wanted to to throw into the mix because if we do a part two i'm sure that we'll get you back on anyway but what uh, anything else you want to mention before you leave just one really and i suppose it's a bit of a cheat because it's not completely died out but it was sort of the pre- prevalent tactic by then and it's strike partnerships oh, specifically yeah. specifically like little and large or complementing skill sets or whatever yes. just just the idea of having a you know a, a shearer and a beardsley or uh you know uh, Fowler and a Collymore or whatever. And Hughes just, McClare. Hughes McClare, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ferdinand Penrice. Yeah. <laughs> I just think, you know, just such a quaint thing that the idea that a tactic, you can have one big and one little and up front and, you, and you've got everything you need there. And I'll tell you what, it made football manager or championship manager back then so much easier to fathom. <laughs> but yeah, I do, I do miss it. You know, you've got all, you know, the false nines and the inverted forwards and all this. I'm like, all right then, whatever. Just, just give me a six footer and a five footer and we'll be away. Do you know what I'm about tactics? If anyone does a podcast in 25 years time and I hope it's gone and they talk about, do you remember in this game, expected goals? That is the <laughs> absolute nonsense stat I've ever seen. It annoys the hell out of me, but that's a modern argument. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of things, tweets out before we go that we haven't mentioned. Um, Sashin Nakrani, big um, follower of the show. Uh, he's been on a few times. He says, fullbacks taking penalties. Nod to Clive Wilson, he used to do that. Centre forwards also playing at centre back. I don't see that anymore, do you? Chris yeah. Sutton. Yeah. Paul Warhurst. No. Paul Warhurst is the old man, isn't it? Totally. Um, I, I wouldn't imagine Virgil van Dijk going, I'm going to be out front for the next few seasons now, would you? Um, well, he might. You, should, you probably should, the way Liverpool are playing. True. Oh, a dig from the main United fan there. Yeah, it's top of the league, or well, they're not at the moment. Um, Rule Fox is his other uh-huh. player. Um, a, couple other wild, a couple other tweets. So it's where are we that we've had today. Simon Devlin at Devils 50 has literally just put a picture of Ryan Giggs and Danny Bear. So I'm guessing nice. celebs, and, and I don't know. I don't know where he's going with that. Um, leadership replaces Football Italia. Um, Corinthian figures, we spoke, spoke about that a lot. Left-sided problems, says Cup Winners' Cup. Um, FA Cup finals, which we've had. Shirts made by Reebok and Champion, says Tan Miller. I should have mentioned the colour of crew, because that was a complete 90s phenomenon when team had the crew-coloured kits. Liverpool, Cholton. And that was probably only so that could match jeans on a night out. Probably. There you go. There we go. Look, we've bookended the podcast beautifully. I, can't, I, don't, I don't want to go on because that, that's perfect. It's a perfect way to, to end possibly part one of this because I think we could go on. So just what reminds me to say, follow us on Twitter at AK90s and on Instagram at AK90s pod. Rate, review, subscribe and all that that we usually say on here. We are the original 1990s football podcast. Thank you very much, Matthew. We'll see you again, obviously, soon. And PB, Mr. Benson, it's great to have you back on. I think you may become a regular again, seeing as we're doing a lot on the 90s at the moment. How do you feel about that? That sounds good to me. Thanks for having me, chaps. It's been well overdue. Exactly. Definitely. Thank you very much for, uh, for downloading. Please stay with us. We'll be back soon with more 90s nonsense here on Alive and Kicking. Until next time, keep it 90s. Alive and kick